You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But then God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Thank you, Kyla. Just to see a show of hands, is there anybody this morning that woke up and thought, man, I really hope Jared preaches on money? Anybody? Ready to show hands? One person. All right. It's kind of what I figured. Let's, uh, Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much, even for hard passages like this, because we know that Um, You give them to us because you want us to ultimately have life, which we know is not found in things. It's not found in possessions, but it's found in you, Jesus. And I just confess that is a message that is hard for me to believe at times. Um, And I would assume I'm not alone. And so we pray that Holy Spirit, that you would work through this teaching today, that it would not just be an information dump, but that truly um, it would be something that changes from the inside out. It's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, on October 21st, Hobby Lobby founder David Green announced that he'd be giving away his company, and by doing so, he was, quote, choosing God over wealth. This attracted a lot of attention from the media, and so he was in an interview with Fox and Friends, and he was asked, why did you decide not to give your $5 billion company to your kids and grandkids? That's a pretty fair question. To which he responded, in most cases, if you drill down on it, wealth is a curse. That's a pretty bold statement from someone who has over $14 billion. um, That despite what the culture says, more stuff does not equal more happiness. Um, That in most cases, the very thing that we often look to for the good life can actually bring about more harm than good. And as Americans, I think we really need to hear this message today. Um, One, because compared to the rest of the world, I don't know if you knew this or not, but we are all filthy rich. I was reading a stat this past week that said that if you have a household income of $50,000, you're in the top 10% of the wealthiest people on the planet. Think about that. Uh, We are a very rich and wealthy people who I think can relate somewhat to that famous uh, quote from John D. Rockefeller. We've shared it several times. Remember, he was the wealthiest man to ever live. And someone came and said, how much money is enough? 
To which, if you remember, he responded by saying what? Just a little bit more. And I think so many of us can relate to that. If I could just make a little bit more money, if I could have just a little bit bigger house, if I could have, you know, just a little bit trendier clothes, or if I could have a little bit more time to go vacation, then I would be happy. And as good as that sounds, Jesus just doesn't believe that. Like Jesus just doesn't buy into that version of the good life that many of us have been sold on. And he is actually not alone. According to sociologists and psychologists alike, um, what they're discovering after a, a lot of studies and research, that material gain does not equal happiness. In an article that I looked at earlier this week in the New York Times, the author said, researchers are now nailing down what pastors and philosophers have been saying for years, that materialism is bad for the soul. Here's another quote from Greater Good Magazine, Science-Based Insights for a Meaningful Life. Research suggests that materialistic people are less happy than their peers. They experience fewer positive emotions, are less satisfied with life, and suffer higher levels of anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. Now, one more. This is an article from Harvard Magazine entitled The Science of Happiness. I found this one intriguing because I had pancakes with the kids yesterday. They said the difference between an annual income of 5000 and one of 50000 is dramatic, but going from 50000 to $50 million will not dramatically affect your happiness. It is like eating pancakes. The first one is delicious. The second one is good. The third one is okay, but by the fifth pancake, you're at the point where an infinite number of more pancakes will not satisfy you to any greater degree. There's literally hundreds of studies out there just like this that we could read. And yet, if you're anything like me, I'm like, I think I'm the exception to the rule. Like, like maybe those people couldn't be happy with stuff, but, but I'm one of these people that I think truly, if I had more money or if I had more possessions, I actually would be happier. I would be more fulfilled. And so what happens is when we tend to, to, to kind of get on the treadmill, to work and to toil and to strive and to run after all of these things. And in the process, what we discover is the reality that oftentimes the more we get, the more we want, which means that therefore we become addicted to the pursuit. We become enslaved to these corrupt desires that we have that honestly, in the end, do not bring about delight, but destruction. And because Jesus is our Savior, he wants to save us from this kind of life. He wants to free us from this. He wants us to find the freedom and the fulfillment that we are longing for. And to help us get there, he gives us this parable. If you look back with me, it's a parable that arises because of a conversation he has with this man in the crowd. In verse 13, it says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. It's important to note right here, some people don't like pastors. They don't like churches because they're they're always trying to get my money. They're always talking about money. Jesus was constantly talking about money. Jesus actually talked about money more than he did anything else. Think about that. Some scholars estimate that Jesus talked about money 25% of the time that he was teaching. So if you're ever praying that I will become more like Jesus, that means that I would preach on money at least once a month if I was like Jesus. He talked about money a lot. And oftentimes when he talked about money, he would talk about the importance of us being generous with our money. And this man picks up on that reality, and so he thought, okay, since Jesus speaks a lot about generosity, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to tell Jesus, to tell my brother that he needs to be generous with the inheritance. That's what's going on right here. 
And what we discover is that in this demand that this man makes, notice he doesn't request, he doesn't ask, hey, Jesus, would you do this? He says, Jesus, tell my brother to give him my inheritance. And what we discover in this demand is something that I think is, is, is really one of the most significant ways that money or wealth, in the words of David Green, can be a curse. And that is that whenever money becomes our God, whenever we begin to look to money as our source of happiness, it actually can ruin our relationships. Notice this man, he, of all the things he could have asked Jesus for, he doesn't say, you know what, my parents just died, can you help me with my grief? He doesn't say, hey, there's, I've got a strained relationship with my brother, can you help heal that relationship? But of all the things he wants, he wants money. And you see, that's the problem with wealth, is whenever it becomes elevated to, to, a, to a, a level that it should not be elevated, what happens is we begin to care more about our possessions than we do about people. We begin to care more about our riches than we do our relationships. And I think if we can be honest today that, that some of us really aren't that much different. I know there's times in my heart where this can be a reality. I was thinking back to 2020 uh, whenever schools opened back up. Remember they were shut down because of COVID and my wife came to me and, and she said, Jared, I really think we should homeschool the kids. And I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. And she said, no, I, I really think we should homeschool the kids. I want to be able to, to be the one who spends the most time with them. I want to be able to teach them. I want to be able to kind of lay this solid foundation for them. I want to, to disciple them. And she said, I really think that, that rather than sending them back to school, that I should stay home and homeschool. And at the, at the time, honestly, I was just like, that's impossible. We cannot do that. She said, why can't we do it? I was like, because you need to work outside the home. So why do I need to work outside the home? Because we need to get a four-bedroom house. That's why. We got a three-bedroom house. We need another bedroom. I've got a 2010 truck, got 180,000 miles. I'll have to eventually have a truck that's less than 100,000 miles on it at least. Like, and I start naming all these things, not that we need, but that we want. And in that moment, what I realized was going on in my own heart is I was at this point caring more about the riches than even the relationships. And I, by the way, that, that story is not saying that everyone should homeschool their kids or you're bad if you don't homeschool your kids. My oldest daughter, we're thinking, is going to go back to public school next semester because she's been asking to do that. So don't miss my point. My point is just this. It's so easy to throw stones at people like this in verse 13 when the reality is we're not that much different, that we can be a lot like this man. He says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In verse 14, Jesus replied, man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? He said, I don't care so much about earthly possessions. I came about, uh, what I care about is heavenly possessions. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to get caught up in this. And then look what he says to this man in the crowd around. This is so sobering. Jesus says, watch out, exclamation point. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Whenever I read that this week, I thought about my uh, former army ranger friend who used to lead troops in Afghanistan. And he used to say to his troops on almost a daily basis, stay alert and stay alive. He said, you had to say that the longer you were in war, because the longer you're in war, the more you can tend to forget that you have a real enemy he's trying to get you. You go through these kind of seasons where no one's firing at you. You're not engaging the enemy. And so you begin to think that, that yeah, I, I can be comfortable. I can get apathetic. I can relax. And he says, as soon as you do that, like that's whenever the enemy takes you down. And Jesus, that's what he's saying right here. He's saying, look, you need to realize that greed can sneak up on you like that. You see, adultery is different. If you commit adultery, you know you're doing it. If you lie, you know you're lying. 
If you gossip, you know you're gossiping. If, if you steal, you know you're stealing. But greed is different than all these other things. It's so subtle. It can just sneak up on you. So much so, I was thinking this past week, I, I, over the last 15 years, I've had a lot of people come and confess sins to me. I cannot think of one single time that someone has come and confessed the sin of greed. Not once can I think of anybody who's ever come and said, Pastor, I think I'm struggling with greed. And that's the point. It's so sneaky. And Jesus says, therefore, you have to watch out to be on guard against this. Greed, guys, it is like this cancer in your body that you don't even realize is there. It's like you look good on the outside, but here is this thing that it's growing and it's spreading. And the more that it's left undetected, unchecked, and unabated, the more likely it is to take you out without even realizing it's coming. So Jesus says, watch out, stay alert, stay alive. And then he gives us this parable to show us the dangers of greed in our own life. He says, verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Good for him. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. So notice this guy, he's a hardworking farmer. He has a good harvest in an agrarian society. That means he's got a lot of money now. And because of this, he has a dilemma. He has so much stuff. He's like, I don't even know what to do with it. And here's what's been really convicting to me this week. Notice who this man begins to have a conversation with because of the dilemma he's in. Who does he talk to? himself. There's no conversation with God here. There's no, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, may your kingdom come and your will be done here as it is in heaven. Like this man has come to a place where he wants to run life his way. He says, God, this is what I want to do with my money. And so what does he do? The most illogical thing you can do, he tears down his current barns, probably nothing wrong with them. Rather than just adding on to what he has, he builds these brand new barns and fills them with all this stuff. He doesn't give to the poor, doesn't give to the church. He just fills these barns with all of his stuff. And for what purpose? Because ultimately he's pursuing the same thing that many of us are pursuing today, which is the American dream. And guys, we do it without even questioning it. Build up our retirement so that one day you can call it quits at work and you can just do you. Eat, drink, travel. Just do what you want when you want. That, we have been told, is the good life. That is the aim. And you see, because this man is primarily carried about project self than he is the kingdom of God. God is nowhere in this picture. And therefore, as a result, in verse 20, look what God says to him. You fool. For this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, he says, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This, Jesus then said, looking at the crowd and looking at you and me, is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. That word fool is the Greek word aphron, which can be translated as fool, which we see here, but it can also be translated as crazy or, crazy or senseless. And it's a word that is used throughout the scripture to describe someone who is living as a functional atheist. What I mean by that is it describes someone who maybe in their mind they, they believe in a God, but they don't live as if that is a reality. 
That's what's happening right here with this man. And so rather than worshiping God, he's worshiping money, which means he's looking to money, to wealth, to possessions as his ultimate source of security and significance and satisfaction. And God says to him, that's what fools do. He says, you are wasting your life on things that in the end have no eternal value. As I was thinking about this text, I was uh, Googling this week to see if there was any artwork around it. And I came across this. This is from a painter in central Texas. And I just think it's good to look at these paintings, these pictures, because it, it accesses a different part of our brain. But notice on the right side, you have this small home. You have this family this warm glow, they're around the table, there's toys out in the yard behind the house is this tree, the author said, uh, or the painter said, represents the tree of life, there's flourishing, there's growth, but then you have the rich fool. And what do you notice about his house besides the fact that it's way bigger? It's empty, yeah. Uh, There's no one in there but him, there's no one in his bedroom There's a little statue, but you see that little statue has even a hole in the chest, which represents the hollowness of the man. Look at his landscape, just cacti, right? It's dead, it's it's just cold, it's sterile. And then look at the border of the picture, like this is the lady who painted this. It was like she, you know, she throws all these trinkets on there that so many of us say, I need this, and really we don't even need that. And then right there you see across from the tables, I don't know if that's the Grim Reaper or who it is, but demanding Tonight, I will take your soul. And as I thought about that, I just thought of Jesus' words in Revelation 3.17, where he says to the church of Laodicea, you say that I'm rich. And I know that we would never say that, but it's true again. We are all rich. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, when wealth becomes your God, it blinds you to your deepest need, which is a relationship with Jesus Christ. The one who alone truly can give you the salvation and the satisfaction that you are longing for. I was talking with Bill Fisher this past week. Bill Fisher, he was up here um, uh, in my office, me, Brooke, and, and, and Marlon Dixon were actually talking about this text, and he was telling me about a time that he went to Ethiopia and he spent two weeks with this tribe in Ethiopia and they lived in these mud huts. And he said these people had nothing. In fact, like they were all Christians. In order to go to their church service, they had to walk three miles just to get there each week. Three miles there, three miles back, no matter what danger was out there, no matter what the weather was like, no cool sound system, no lights, none of that. Just These people just want to go worship Jesus. And they had nothing. They literally lived on dirt floors and and he said, the crazy thing is, despite the fact they had nothing, he said, what, what shocked me is you could not wipe the smile off their face no matter how hard you tried. And I asked him, I said, well, what, why do you think they were so happy? And he responded by saying they just didn't know any better. They weren't comparing themselves to these people that are just a little bit above them and saying, oh, if I could just get to where he is or she is, then I would be happy. They were all dirt poor. They all had nothing except for Jesus Christ. And as a result, they experienced a level of happiness in Christ that many of us in here, I would dare to say, know little to nothing about. And that is why Jesus' words, I think, are so sobering. He says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. And because we are all rich, I believe Jesus would say to you and me today, watch out. This is not a message for the person in front of you or behind you, or beside you. It's a message for you. 
watch out, be on guard, which I think begs the question of how do we do this? Like if this is a real temptation that could cause us to miss out on the life we are longing for in Christ, how do we remain on guard against all kinds of greed? And I have four things I want to share with you very quickly, but the first one is this, if you're taking notes. If you want to guard your heart against greed, you need to plan your funeral. Which probably sounds pretty morbid, but it's biblical. The psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Some of you probably creeped out by the fact that our staff, every single week that it's pretty, goes and prays at the cemetery. Uh, Whenever I work on my sermons on Sunday mornings, if I'm looking at it, praying through it, I go to the cemetery. In fact, I was in Linwood this morning. And the reason I do that is because I want to be reminded of the reality that when I'm getting up here and I'm teaching, that I'm teaching to people who one day will die. And you will spend eternity in either a real place called heaven or a real place called hell. There's coming a day, where, like we see right here in verse 20, where God is going to say, this is it. This is as far as you go. And we don't know when that's going to be. Like, we don't know if that's going to be 60 years from now or 60 minutes from now. Like, we just have the time that God has given us. And we need to, with that in mind, guys, begin to live with eternity in mind. I was talking with a, a, a friend of mine, Caleb Potter. We lived together uh, when I was going to seminary in Louisville, and now he's a hospice director in Kentucky and is around dying people all the time. And I asked him this week, because I was reading this passage, I said, hey, man, do, uh, what are the biggest regrets people have when, they're, when they know they're, like, dying? And he said, uh, oh, without a shadow of a doubt, it's about relationships. It's never about riches. I've never once, he said, heard in whatever it is, 15, 20 years, anybody say, I wish I would have made more money, or I wish I would have had more stuff or a bigger house. He said the regrets are always around either the relationship with God or the relationship with somebody else. And guys, I just want to say, like, I, there's just no way I can change your heart on this, but I'm praying the Holy Spirit does it. We've got to learn to live with the end in mind. What's important to us on our deathbed should be important to us right now. We need to live for what David Brooks calls not resume virtues, but funeral virtues, the kind of things that actually matter whenever we die. In light of that, I would say the second thing is if you want to guard your heart against greed, don't just plan your funeral, but pursue God's kingdom. That's exactly what Jesus goes on to say. You can read it on your own later in verse 22 through 34. He shares this parable, then he looks at his disciples and he says, man, you guys are worried about so much stuff that you don't need to be worried about. And then what's crazy is, listen to stuff he says you're worried about, you shouldn't be worried about. What you're going to eat. That seems pretty important to me. You shouldn't worry about that, Jesus said. Shouldn't worry about what you eat. Shouldn't worry about what you drink. Shouldn't even worry about the clothes you're going to wear. Don't worry about tomorrow. I'm like, well, who's going to worry about tomorrow if I don't worry about tomorrow? Don't worry about that stuff. You see, we, we get so, so worried and anxious over these things. And then if you're anything like me, often I feel like the solution to my problems is money. If I could get more stuff, I could have more money, that would would help me kind of control my own destiny. And Jesus says, that is a false God, that is an idol, and what happens is it will just make you more anxious. And so he says in here, you want to cure your anxiety, you want to guard your heart against greed, you don't need more stuff. He just says, verse 31, seek first God's kingdom, and all of these things you need will be given to you as well. So you want to guard your heart, man, I want to encourage you, like, just... Open up every single day with your hands like this, nothing in it, and just say, God, 
Like, like, like whatever you want me to do, like I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the next right step. Even if it's illogical, even if it doesn't make sense on paper in the budget, I'm going to trust you. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. Third, if you want to guard your heart against greed, you need to practice generosity. In the words of Randy Alcorn, giving is God's cure for greed. And so if we want to cure greed, we need to practice generosity. And as pastors, we really want to encourage our people to to practice generosity by giving of their time, their talents, and their treasures. By giving of our time, what I mean is we need to create space in in our calendars. We need to create space where we actually have time to serve other people. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but but we all have different amounts of money in our bank account, right? Some are richer or poor when it comes to money, but we are all in the same place when it comes to time. Everybody in here has 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you get to decide what you want to do with that time. And we need to be a people who stop trying to live like everybody else in the world and then shove Jesus into the nooks and crannies of our life. That is a discipleship method that is planned to fail. It is doomed. We have got to learn to bring all of our schedule under the lordship of Christ. And let me just say this. I think it's a grave mistake whenever you put your kids in front of your spouse. And it's an even bigger mistake if you put your kids in front of God. And I think that some of us are doing that. We are letting our children set our whole schedule. Everything is evolving around their activities. And and I I just want to remind you today of this. God has given us kids not for our benefit, but for the benefit of the world. Our kids are going to be outside of our home longer than they're going to be inside of our home. And we need to think through how are we preparing them for the real world? How are we sharpening them like arrows to be sent out into the world to impact people we will never be able to impact? And one of the greatest ways we do that, Chris mentioned this a while ago, when it comes to discipleship, Jesus made disciples in life on life, life in community, and life on mission. If we're going to disciple our kids, the same has to be true. We have to create space where we can take our kids on mission, where we can serve some of the biggest needs in our city and our church. But you cannot do that if you're not willing to give up your time. So we need to create space, and that way practice generosity by by giving up time, but also give up your talents. If you have the Holy Spirit, you realize you have specific gifts God has given you for the purpose of his mission. Specific gifts. That maybe the person next to you don't have or I don't have gifts like hospitality or mercy or service or teaching or intercessory prayer or prophecy. Whatever the gift you have that God has given you, I want to encourage you to use it for the benefit of another. And then lastly, I want to encourage you to give away your treasures to make earthly or eternal investments. And when we look in the Bible, there are five places that we are called to give or four places specifically that we're commanded to give. One is we're commanded to give to our family. Paul says in 1 Timothy, if you can't provide for your family, you're worse than a non-believer. You're called to give to brothers and sisters in the faith. In Galatians 6, it says, do well for everyone, especially those of the household of faith. You're also commanded, I don't know if you knew this or not, to give to the poor. Lots of verses on this in the Bible. Matthew 25, it's a very sobering text. Jesus is trying to draw the distinction between sheep and goats, between Christians and non-Christians. And he says, do you want to know how you know the difference? It's how you treat the poor. We're commanded to give to the least of these, and we're commanded to give to the local church. And there's all kinds of passages on this, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Timothy 5, Galatians 6, Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin 
And you've neglected the weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then he says this, these you ought to have done. So you should have tithed. You should have given a tenth of your income, but without neglecting the others. I know that it is weird anytime a pastor talks about money. Uh, It's weird for you. It's certainly weird for me because my salary is tied to giving. It's awkward. Um, But for the sake of walking through my own fear and shame, I just want to say this. Like, if this church is your family, if this is where your membership is, if if these pastors are the ones who God has called to watch over your souls as those who are going to give an account to God, if this is the church where you believe in the mission and the vision of what God has called you to in order to help advance the kingdom of God, I want to encourage you to give financially. Again, the church is a family, and just as your family takes money to run, this is a big family that takes money to run. Apart from your generosity, uh, we would not have a staff to serve the body. Uh, apart from your generosity, we would not have a building. Utilities, we could make the utilities keep it on. And by the way, our building, uh, someone in the first service, they didn't know this, our building is not just used for us. I don't know if you knew that or not. Our building is actually used a lot more for the community than it's even used for us. Uh, Jody told me today that, that as of this date, even though we didn't even book any events the first couple of months because we were doing a remodel, we have had 50 different community-wide events this year in this building. And it's used for weddings all the time. I got a chance to officiate the Greer's wedding yesterday, Dawson and, and Aspen. It's a beautiful wedding. Four years in a row, this building has got uh, a wedding venue of the year by Premier Magazine. So it serves a lot of different people, and that happens because of your generosity. Apart from your generosity, we wouldn't have ministries for the birth through 12th grade. We wouldn't be able to support missionaries and church planners. We wouldn't have great ministries, kind of unique ministries like the Paragold Podcast. I was talking with Robert this week about that. Since January 21st, make sure I get this right, Robert, we have had 103,000 downloads. Is that right? 103,000. Guys, that is three times the amount of the people that live in Paragold. And on a weekly basis, almost weekly basis, the gospel is going out to people who never even come into this building. And it's because of your generosity. And so I just want to say, like, your money matters. Your money matters because we have ongoing maintenance. Jody Dillon told me this week we need to get a new roof, which is like $150,000. So that's pretty awesome. Um, We have ongoing maintenance and we have ongoing mission. We want to plant more churches. We're in the process right now of working on trying to start a drug-based holistic rehab. We have a massive, massive drug problem in our city that only Christ can bring healing to. And so we're working on initiatives like that and all the other ministry. And so again, if you consider this your church, I want to encourage you guys, trust God in this area. I would actually even say, don't just trust God in this area. Listen to me, test God in this area. You say, well, I didn't know we were supposed to test God. Well, the only place in the Bible where it does say to test God is in Malachi chapter 3, or if you're new to the church, Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. You bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, or bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. Listen to this promise. Test me in this, 
and see if I do not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not even be enough room to store it. Does that sound familiar? So I want to encourage you. Trust God can do more with your 90% than you can do with your 100%. Test him. Just see what happens. I would even say this. I didn't say this in the first service. I guess you guys get the special on this. Try for six months. If you end up in a financial crisis, come back and we'll reimburse your money. I don't even know if I can do that, by the way. I probably need to ask the elders. But I'm that, I just believe, I just, uh, I just trust God will provide. Um, and if you're like, I can't give 10%, just start somewhere. Just start somewhere. And don't believe the lie, if I made more money, I would give more. That's not true. Every stat in the world says that's not true. I think in a Barna research, it said 8% of people who make $20,000 a year gave 10%. 5% who make 20 to 29% gave 10%. Look how it goes down. Only 4% of those who made forty dollars to $50,000 per household income gave 10%. And then only 2% of those who make sixty dollars to $75,000 a year gave 10%. The more you make, the harder it is to give. We know that's true, right? You make $10... It's not that hard to give me one. You make $1,000, a hundred, you can do quite a bit with a hundred, right? I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's just, there's a lot more you have to give away. So don't believe the lie that the more I make, the more I would give. Trust God wherever you can, whatever that is, 10%, 5%, start somewhere, give regularly, give joyfully, give sacrificially, and trust according to God's word that he will give back to you. Might not be financially, but he will give back to you in a way that is bigger and better than you can imagine. So, Plan your funeral. Pursue the kingdom of God. Practice generosity. The last thing I'd say if you want to grow in generosity is preach the gospel to yourself. You will never be generous if you do not first believe that God has been generous towards you. That's the key. It's the way everything works. Forgiving people forgive people. Generous people are generous because God has been generous to them. It's the way it works. And how has God been generous to you while you were still in your sin, before you ever lifted a finger for him? Not only did he create you and bring you into this world and literally give you every single thing that you have, but ultimately he gave you his own son, Jesus Christ. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's how generous God is. And man, I pray that never becomes old news. That God sent his son Jesus to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He came in the words of the Apostle Paul, and though he was rich, Jesus became poor so that by his poverty, now you could become rich. True riches can be found in Jesus Christ. When you were at your worst, God gave you his best. His best. And because that is true, Paul goes on in Romans 8, and he says, if God has given you his best, then what makes you think he will withhold anything from you now? Man, that is something I need to hear. Because as I've told y'all before, I can tend to live with a scarcity mindset. I've shared this picture before that, uh, but whenever I was, I guess it was a few, four, five, six years ago, we took our kids and they were younger to go Easter egg hunting at AutoZone Park. Y'all remember that story? Some of you remember that? None of you? Okay. Um, just a great reminder. It's what it's like to be a preacher. It's like, you know. Um, we went to AutoZone Park for an Easter egg hunt, and they were going to scatter eggs out all over the field. There's thousands of kids. They're roped off. The helicopter flies in. Rather than scattering the eggs, the guy drops the bucket, and there is just this massive mound of eggs right in one spot in center field. The kids bust through the rope 
my kids who are smaller than the rest of them just get trampled on. I mean, they're just left behind and they end up getting like nothing, no eggs. And we like went to Memphis for this thing. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, man, like that's how I tend to live my life. And that's how I think most of us feel in this world. That there's this limited amount of resources out in center field somewhere that I've got to get to. The problem is, it's like everybody around me is bigger than me, faster than me, better than me. And so I've just got to work even harder to somehow get these things. And I don't even know what it is. But I've got to be able to get this thing that I'm going to have to have in the future. Because if I don't have it, then I'm not going to be fulfilled. I'm not going to be satisfied. No wonder we're so anxious. No wonder we're so exhausted. And listen, if you're living that way, like that is a scarcity mindset. And you do not live in a world of scarcity. You live in a place of abundance. This is our Father's world. And he owns it all. And if he has given you Jesus Christ, his best, guys, I can promise you, he's not going to nickel and dime you to death. He's just not. And so I pray that we would begin to live from this place of abundance, that we would be generous with others as God has been generous with us. And honestly, like this, according to Jesus, is what leads to a happy life. He says in Acts chapter 20, blessed are those who give. Or it's more better to give, more blessed to give than it is to receive. And the Greek word he uses there for more blessed is the Greek word makarios, which means happier. The happiest people on the planet are people who give. And I've begun to see this. Um, go back to Bill Fisher. I had, a, I had a breakfast with him at his house a couple weeks ago. His wife just passed away. They're married 65 years. And so I go and I'm sitting at his house. And, and Bill, as far as I know, he'd probably kill me if I said this, but... Um, as far as I know, he's probably at least one of the top five wealthiest guys in Paragold. I mean, he's like friends with the Clintons. He's been friends with the Waltons. I mean, he's, he has done incredible. He was a chairman of the State Board of Education under Huckabee and, and all these people, you know, appointed by them. I mean, has been so successful, so lucrative. Everything he touched, like, turned to gold. And we're sitting there, and we're eating this overcooked bacon, and um, he... He says, you know, I'm looking back at my life now because I know that most of it's behind me, and I'm telling you, Jared. And he's like, and I wish I could say it to all these other kids your age. That's what he calls me. Like, I'm 39, but that's cool. And so he's like, the thing that has fulfilled me the most in my life that I still find so much joy and satisfaction in, in is the times I was able to help other people, the times I was able to give to others so that they could have so that I could give to the church, I could give to this, this nonprofit, whatever it may be. He's like, that's the thing that has given me the most fulfillment in life. And as I thought about Bill, I was like, man, he is just the complete opposite of a Scrooge. And we're about to enter into Christmas season. Like, you, you guys know the story, right? Like, Scrooge just, like, was obsessed with his own stuff. And so he comes into his life, he's cold, he's, he's cranky, he's lonely. Like, Bill Fisher is the complete opposite of that. Bill Fisher is a man who understands something I hope that we get today, which is the reality that happiness, enduring happiness, does not come from what we gain, but what we give away for the benefit of others and ultimately the glory of God. Bill is 84 years old. His wife of 65 years just died. He's living all alone in his house now. His own health is, is failing him, and yet he still has a heart that is full of love and full of joy and full of peace. He's calm He's confident. He's still thinking about others. He's still living open-handed. 
I mean, he is more like Jesus than possibly anybody else I know. And I don't know about you, but I want to be there really bad. And I think if, if we're going to get there, we need to make sure that we make decisions today that put us on that trajectory, which means we need to choose today to plan our funeral, to pursue first the kingdom of God, to practice generosity. And remember that as we're doing that, that we have received everything that we need in Jesus Christ.